There are many ways to travel around the world, but what is so specifically glorious about the road trip? The romance of hitting the wide open road has sparked the imaginations of writers and directors since the dawn of the highway. The journey might take longer than on a plane or in a train, but in your car, restrictions are lifted. You can take wrong turns that turn out to be right turns, meet weird and wonderful people, and get up close and personal with your surroundings. You might have a destination in mind, or maybe you just want to see where the ride takes you. Maybe an unexpected twist in the road or the story will lead you to places you'd never have otherwise explored. You're listening to The Road Ahead in association with Audi. In each episode, we'll be exploring different paths around the world across four different continents. This week, rent a car and then drive up to Chiang Rai and then just stop at um, restaurants on the roadside on the highway. I can't even tell you how much I'm salivating, just think about it. We're in Thailand. The route, well, after taking some notes in Bangkok, we learn that some of the finest drives in the country are in the north. So after meeting some of the locals in the capital, we'll be heading up to Chiang Mai, where we'll take the rather precarious road 107 before joining the incredible, but also rather mad, 1095 up to Pai, a small backpacker town in the beautiful province of Mei Hong Song. There are a few ways to travel through Thailand. You can take a slow boat up the Mekong or the Ping, entrust yourself to a Thai train or two, or make the trudge with a pack on your back. This place is rightly famous for being populated by as many Berghaus backpacks as beatific monks and temples. When we said we were going on a road trip in Thailand, people thought we were mad. There's a relaxed way with the highway code, and the roads themselves can be like a racetrack dreamt up by Dante. But we'll take the road, thanks all the same. So, our reading of The Lie of the Land starts in Bangkok, where we'll meet the very best locals, creative, connected and tireless, and they'll spin us a yarn and stick some pins in our roadmap. Our first port of call is to the offices of Wonderfruit, Asia's finest festival that takes place each December. Wonderfruit is a mix of music, talks, art and architecture with a strong sustainability message borne out by some of the stages of the festival itself. One year, an intricate temple-shaped stage played host to bands and was then eaten on the final day. How so? It was made of rice. That's how. It's this sort of witty way with his green credentials that's typical of Wonderfruit founder Pete Pornprapa, who told us how to make a festival and why Thailand's the place to do it. Well, you know, I think being in Thailand, naturally, there's a lot of, I think, cultural and traditional things that we interpret through the event. I mean, you know, you guys have been in Thailand and I think you understand, like, the hospitality in Thailand is natural. It's not like, I don't know, it's safe to say, but not like in America where you need to tip someone to get, like, you know, a smile. In Thailand, it's natural. So I guess that sense of it distilled is very effortless, right? So that, how do we interpret that? And I think that's interpreted throughout uh, a lot of what Wonderfruit does. This is just going through the cultural and traditional part. I think there's a lot of that, the cultures and traditions, the respect of the land. I mean, we do a big blessing ceremony before and after, always um, on the land. And then obviously the visual stuff, like if you come and see the structures this year, a lot of it has a lot of Thai architectural influence. Obviously the food, but also in the way we interpret our ethos, like in Thailand, 
And I think like in a lot of countries that are developing, like if you think of um, sustainability, sometimes it might be mistaken for poverty, just the way people reuse things or the way people, you know, interpret things, you know, because in 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 very developed country, obviously, you know, you know, you have hyper consumerism and everything is just so we're trying to reposition and have people's perception changed by the way throwing the lines between like you know how Thailand deals with like sustainability and the you know the use of materials that we use the villagers use um, you know so one thing that we work or, or brief with architects is how can we build as simple as simply as possible making things as simple but as beautiful and that's like you know I've told you about working with Abe and you know and, and other architects we work with so like those are the, I think, fundamental tininess of it, but being interpreted through or content, yeah. And there's an interesting opportunity, I suppose, in Thailand where people, as you say, you know, the, the rural people are sustainable by their nature because they have to, you can't, you can't ruin the land on which you live and work and thrive. I suppose there's an opportunity in a developing nation to show people that, success doesn't mean you know you know it doesn't necessarily mean the things it used to mean in the 1960s and 70s in the united states it doesn't mean throwing everything away and being proud to be consumerist or being proud to be wasteful it can be a lot of dignity and coolness and modernity in sustainability i suppose that's one of the things yeah yeah you that's exactly right and then like you know and and living that way with like a big smile instead of like complaining about everything yeah (laughs) yeah that always helps yeah yeah (laughs) on a personal level pete it must be a satisfying thing for you to have kind of launched this launched this baby and see it kind of growing and and it seems every year it kind of defines itself more precisely as as crystal the idea of it crystallizes did did, when you started the festival five years ago you obviously have your hopes and dreams and ambitions and all the rest of it it seems like the, the idea of it crystallizes each year more more perfectly is it what you expected it to be five years ago? Mm-hmm. I would say it's evolved slightly. I mean, when we first started, to be honest, year one, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> we, you know, we just we knew we wanted to do, we wanted to create uh, a, um, an experience that had um, impact and be a voice for uh, the things that you know were that that we believe in. But um, I think you like these things only become clearer as you do them. So like from thought into action, there's a real, you know, there's a, there's a huge gap, I think, with everything. So that once you start doing it, then, you know, the people you meet and also by doing these things, then it becomes more clear. But the intention and the ethos has not changed. It's only, I think, even become stronger. But I think the way that we're laying out the platform and the way that, you know, we, we think about uh, the the other projects that are that that hopefully will roll out in between has been a result of doing have been doing it for a couple of years. Oh hi Jay, for here is Thailand's best record producer Monton Jira. Amazing the people you bump into in a creative office like this. He's also one of the founders of Wonderfruit and a sprightly force to be reckoned with. So how does he program the shows? How do you tame such a wild beast as a three-day festival? Oh, Jay knows. So I think half of the ideas that we get for Wonderfruit are based on what I've maybe seen or heard or what I would like to see. And same thing goes with Pete and the rest of the team. 
recommending things that it's more of a personal thing. We're taking less into account how well it's going to do in terms of ticket sales, at least with individual names. We're looking at the lineup as one collaborative piece that, that has, you know, it's like a big puzzle with tiny pieces that when you put it all together, then okay, it looks complete. When we say, okay, we think this whole collection has like a superstar power because it's so varied. It covers a lot of different genres. It focuses a lot on the, the local versus the very strange from weird parts of the world. And we're bringing them to Wonderfruit, both for our local or regional audiences to give them opportunity to see these bands, which they would never get to see. You know, the only big bands that are coming through are the Giants. Or they're very, very tiny as well. But then again, playing in very small venues in the middle of the week. And so we're hoping that by curating and picking a good variety of bands um, and bringing them to Wonderfruit, it provides an even more abstract experience you know, which people look forward to at Wonderfruit anyways. It'd be nice to get a sense of the landscape of the Thai music industry and the, and the stuff that you're involved in. It seems like Korean music and Japanese music has, has pushed against an, an increasingly open door for non-English language. Yes. I mean, period. I say non-English language. I don't even mean Asian. I don't even mean East Asian. I mean, just they're, they're the two non-English yeah. art forms that seem to be pushing against. Is that a good opportunity? Is it, is it a kind of good time to be a Thai musician for that reason, I wonder? Do you feel I, like it is? I think so, for two different reasons. One, because... You know, I think once the markets start to get saturated within those specific regions, not even looking at Chinese music yet, you know, but in Japan and Korea, once those start breaking through, I think a lot of the market, they're looking towards Southeast Asia. And once they move here, I think maybe Thailand is sort of at the forefront of being able to provide some sort of entertainment there. Um, for one, that's that's a big thing. Second, Secondly, I think also with the whole surge of popularity, say also with movies, um, you know, like Crazy Rich Asians and and the Korean bands doing very well in the U.S. as well in a market that's completely outside of their their world. Um, that allows for, I guess, allows for hope within these markets that, you know, if, if there were to be an artist at that caliber to be able to push through, that it would be completely possible now. And do you feel like you're in a movement or do you feel like you're your own man and you, 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 you work internationally and all the rest of it. I think there's a movement. Like, do you feel like there's a movement? There's a movement. Yeah. There's a movement. And I think, you know, I, I've spoken to somebody that came over here in regards to the music industry as well. And he said the thing that's different here was that everybody seems to be very much willing to just recommend and help as a community. Man, we were hungry, and so we strode off one night following our noses to the finest restaurant in town, 100 Mahaset. Just give it the street name and number, and no one gets lost, even in this city that would fox a minor tour. Charlie Kader is the chef proprietor of this and other places around town, and his focus is on exploring the palate of Thailand, from the spice of the north to the sweet and unctuous dishes of the south. Satisfied and taste bud titillated, we found Charlie a lot of fun to hang out with too. So after the eating, we also did some talking. Well, I want to ask you about regions, yeah. because it seems obviously your, your restaurant your restaurants dance around between a few yeah. regions of, of the country as well. So maybe you can take us from south to north or north to south, whichever way you want to take us. Um, how, do, how does the map of Thailand taste? 
um, the North will have a lot of influence also from the Chinese as well. And um, the dishes there are a bit more flatter, I would say. Um, and it's all based on terrain that's in that area. Um, really difficult to find um, good northern food nowadays just due to um, it's just difficult to get all the vegetables and all the produce they are used to when the recipes they have right and then you move over to the northeast you'll get um, a lot of dishes that uh, they they are very self-sufficient and whatever they have around them um, they would they grow a lot of rice as well so you'll find different um, strains and, and, and varieties of rice um, a bunch of vegetables that are from the jungle and from from the forest um, which they also basically almost like foraging for them right and also when they when they when they kill cows or pigs or you know they slaughter them they are really creative in finding ways to preserve them you know I mean one village cannot finish a whole cow or a whole pig within a day so, but then they will not waste it. It doesn't go to dog food. I mean, they would have to obviously, um, whatever they cannot finish or cannot have, they will have preserve preserve it through um, um, fermenting with rice, with salt, with sugar. And also up in the northeast and the north, there's also salt farms, which is really amazing because up there, they used to, underneath all the land on the, in the north and northeast, there are a lot of salt beds. So we have different kinds of salts. So they use all those salts for their fermentation and for their pre preservation of food as well. So yeah, I'll leave the central for the last because it's, 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 there's a lot more to say about central, but we'll go down south. So in the south, you have um, influence with Indian dishes. If you look at the map, right, once you see Singapore, Malaysia, we see like the Indians have moved in and they went all the way down further. So you have lots of curry that has a lot of pungency, a lot of spices, really, um, really lots of heat in it, packing lots of heat. Um, they'll use coconut milk, but not as much as in the central or the, um, in the eastern area. But you also find coconut down there as well. You also see a lot of seafood down there as well because it's next to the, the, the sea. So you'll find the thing I love about the south is just the flavors are so, so bold and then and, and they just, don't care, they just want to be spicy and in your face, and that's the best thing about it. One of the ideas of this is that we're driving from place to place, we're tasting and seeing amazing things. Um, where, would you, where would you go if you're on a notional kind of road trip in Thailand? Where would you drive for a certain meal? Where would you go? In um, Thailand? Yeah. Um, I'll take, what I usually do is I take a flight down to Chiang, up to Chiang Mai, rent a car, and, and then just stop at um, uh, restaurants on the roadside on the highway. There's so many. I can't even tell you how much I'm salivating just thinking about it. And sometimes you just leave the window open. You can smell the guy on the, with the restaurant on the street just... You smell the restaurant or the guy? Yeah, the guy. Okay, the guy roasting the chilies on the restaurant. I hope I don't smell them. <laughs> but yeah. But then, like, you know, it's one time I was driving and I was like, I rolled the window down. I was like, where is this roasted chili smell coming from? And I had to find out and just, I just parked a car and just had a little walk and then like, it was there, this one small restaurant and then it was him and his wife and his kid just cooking some food in a one shop house kind of thing. And it was like one of the best um, lap nua, which is a, a time of mincemeat um, dish. And that, that, that particular um, roasted chili, which they use in the dish, um, it was so good. I even asked him like, would he sell it to me? He's like, no, we only have enough to use for 
the today and tomorrow. So yeah, that was it. The secret <laughs> dies with him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, but at least I got the location down. So next time I'm on my trip, I'll probably stop by again. Yeah, yeah but that's always a good trip to do is uh, in the to the north, um, Chiang Mai to Chiang Rai, or go to northeast, stop, land in Udon or Konkan, and just drive to Sakonakon to um, Nong Khai and stuff like that. That's the best. With our bellies full, it's time to get the driving part of this show on the road. After a short shuttle up country, we arrive in Chiang Mai, the starting point for our road trip. And after trying to tackle the traffic in the city and in Bangkok, we're looking forward to getting out into the open countryside. So while we as bananas as everyone thought for driving in Thailand, well, there's only one way to find out. You got how long before you buy? One day, one night. One day, one night. Busy. Yeah. Yep, but nice. Before we hit the road, we bump into an old friend. Last time we came to Chiang Mai, Ying had moved here to study architecture. It's a long course, so she still is, but also runs a business, Boribot, using the area's indigenous indigo to dye fabrics and sells a diverse splash of robes, bags and accessories that are the kind of blue that would make Eve Klein jealous. We meet her at Wan Niman, a cultural centre in Chiang Mai, surrounded by design shops and markets selling crafts by local makers and retailers like Ying. It seems that's a very, that's maybe a Chiang Mai thing or a Thai thing that you can, it's quite easy. There's a lot of people just on the road. We drive past 100,000 people just almost opening their, their kitchen, the family kitchen, yeah. to, to anyone, to, for, to foreigners or yes. to, to Thais, just like you stop by the roadside because you want a coconut or you want to you eat, some, yes. um, you wanna eat a, some pork rice. And that's a really... That's an unusual thing if you're from England, right? Or yes. if you're from France or something, yes. right? I, I travel to France and it's so boring. It's like the road, it's just, no, you don't see anything at all. But if you ride across Thailand, you will, okay, when you change the province, you will see this province, this city sell coconut. And then they sell like banana and then a lot of strawberry and like sometimes a lot of chicken or like, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's why I tell you that it's, easy to like sell stuff in Thailand so it's, you can see the the culture like the subculture a lot that's why maybe it's the charming of that's why people like it here yeah we've been pointed north by our chef friends and Ying has got us in the mood for exploring Thailand on four wheels so we get going after an exciting start out of the city, the roads begin to hush. The road we're taking might have fewer cars on it, but that doesn't mean you can quite relax. You're in for a roller coaster ride. We zigzag up and down mountains with tight uphill twists that make alpine roads look like suburban driveways, and each one reveals a brilliant green vista that reaches further than the last. Take this road slowly. About three quarters of the way to Pai, we come across the Hoi Nam Dang National Park. Just when we thought we couldn't get much higher, this trail takes us 2,000 metres up into the hills where we find an incredibly peaceful manicured garden with a panoramic view of mountain peaks. Great, isn't it? Wow. Really Do you think there's any leopards up here? Right, okay. I really want to see one. Um, my voice sounds a little weak because we've done the 1095, which is a route of switchbacks that arc through amazing, dense green forest. 
I'm travelling northwest from Chiang Mai up uh, to Pai, where the Pai River runs through it, which is where we're standing on the banks looking out across some things that are beautiful bungalows. There's a bit of a backpacker scene here, but that's the back of us. We're looking out rather over woodland, crazy bamboo forests, clouds scudding across the sky, but mostly blue. Um, but also the sun beats down on us. We're a little bit tired after that, after that drive. I don't know, it feels like an alpine road is a hangar straight compared to the um, route that we've just done. A little exhausted in pie. Our final rendezvous is with the august novelist Lawrence Osborne. Osborne's lived in New York and Istanbul, and he has perhaps an itinerant heart. He's lived in Bangkok for less than a decade, but is an expert guide to the lesser-known treats of a city that gives pleasure and forgives curiosity. Well, I think I moved here uh, precisely to work because I found working impossible in New York, where I'd been living before. And, um, uh, you know, everyone's different in that respect. I think um, it's easy to find a certain kind of serenity in this culture, and certain cultures have that gift of serenity. So, you, so even though Bangkok is mad and it's, you know, cacophonous and enormous and difficult to move around and stressful, at the same time, you can find your little niche, your little platform um, very easily. Um, so for me, it was a question of finding an apartment where I had those things and I had a, a sort of vegetal environment, which I have at the end of my little street. And it's really like living in a village where I am. I mean, I'm not far from where we are now, but I mean, a, it feels like a, a village from 40 or 50 years ago. There's no neon, there's no bars, there's no music, there's nothing. Um, I'm just in these sort of surrounded by old t tobacco warehouses from the 1930s and jungle. Yeah. And, you know, these sort of buildings where people just, it's a normal Thai, I would say upper class, normal upper class Thai neighborhood. And it, I mean, it, it's not necessarily then uh, the, the kind of Thai-ness, as it were, the, the kind of people have this strange view that you should, writers should, there's an argument whether you should or shouldn't have a room with a view as a writer. I tend to think actually it can be a distraction more than something to take sucker and creativity. It depends what the view is. If it was a view of, the, you know, um, out of the window of Amalfi or something or Capri, I mean, I think that would be distracting and sort of inert. But, you know, the views here are sort of tropical Blade Runner. They're not really um, romantic in that classic, in that, in that normal European sense. In fact, one of the things that Westerners dislike about Bangkok is that they can't make any spatial sense out of it because most Asian cities are not built around our idea of architecture. They're not built out of, they're not made of permanent and imposing geometries that express state power. They're not built like that. They're built more like sort of, you know, uh, perishable origami. I mean, Tokyo's like that as well. I mean, it's a, there's a jumble of things. And they're very human and very um, easy to live in but they don't provide uh, what we think of as views. Now here I have a, I'm high up, so I have a sweeping city views. And what you have is the sky, which is an important thing, I think, for writers. For me, anyway, because it's a question of light. Light and sky are important things. They sort of connect you to something that's, um, you know, not, not, not earthly, whatever, without getting too mystical about it. But I think if I had, if I had a living arrangement where I didn't have a large amount of sky, I would be quite depressed, you know. But it's a very welcoming culture in many ways. And it's a very sort of, it's very affable in the sense that it leaves you alone. 
It's the linguistic isolation which is uh, so valuable to me. Because when you're surrounded by Eng English, you're in a constant state of anxiety about what you can hear, about yeah. fragments of conversations of people you've instantly decided to dislike based on a certain tonality, which you know is, on, is, is absolutely ongoing. I mean, it never relents for a moment. Whereas when you're surrounded by a foreign language, I enjoy writing yeah. my own language more than, it's weird, it sounds stupid, but I enjoy writing it more. It's worked for me. I've written more in five years here than in 25 in New York. Simple as that. Much more. But yeah, I think Thailand's a very enjoyable... I mean, to me, it's a very, it's a very mysterious place in many ways. Well, that's almost it for this series of The Road Ahead, or at least for my own odyssey. In episode six, we're treating you to a piece of original fiction that we hope will inspire you to hit the road and will be something you might want to listen to once you're on it. It's a short story by the writer Dan Richards, whose books take you to all corners of the globe. He's documented his own adventures in titles such as Climbing Days and Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. And for us, he's written Ursa Major, a vivid trip through the Cascades where it's rumoured there might be bears. The Road Ahead is made in association with Audi and soon you'll be able to go on all these adventures in the all-electric Audi e-tron. The series producer was Holly Fisher, the executive producer was Tom Edwards and the assistant producer was Kieran Banerjee. We hope we've inspired you to jump into your car and hit the highway to have some adventures of your own. Perhaps we'll see you on the road soon. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.